0: Welcome those of you who are watching online. I know it's Memorial Day weekend. Some of you are at a hotel or on vacation somewhere, and you chose to join us online, so we're glad to have you. Can't wait to see you back again. Uh, and, and you know, this, this this holiday really means a lot for those of us that were born and raised here. We got to recognize that there are people who shed their blood and gave their life for everything that we get to enjoy. I've got Christian brothers and sisters, friends of mine living in the Middle East and different parts of the world where they can't do this on Sunday legally. They actually have to hide and they can't sing out loud. They've got to whisper because they don't have the freedom that we enjoy because men and women shed their blood. And so let's just take a moment and let's honor those who have given their life for this nation to enjoy all of the freedoms that we get to enjoy. Come on, let's honor them right now this Memorial Day weekend. Before I get into the message, I want to I want to give some clarification. Those of you who give online, we know that over 70 to 80 percent of our church family, they give through our online uh, feature, through our website. Uh, we updated the online giving categories. They're the same categories. We just updated the vocabulary for where we're going as a church, and I just wanted to take a moment and clarify that with you today. We've got two main options of online giving in in, in Basically, these are the options of the Christian life. You have your tithe, and then whatever you give above the tithe, that is called an offering, and we call that kingdom building. Because what you are doing when you give above your tithe, you're building God's kingdom. You're giving an offering to God to build his kingdom. So if you go on our online giving, you'll have the tithe, and then you'll have four different kingdom builder Categories that are the areas of giving in our church. The first is our building. That's the construction project that is happening out there. There are people who they just felt called and impressed of God to give above their tide to help that building go forward. Uh, there is missions. People have a passion for missions in Africa or in Asia or in South America. As a church, we have a number of mission projects happening around the world. And people have a passion to give towards missions, to advancing the gospel. We have all of our personal work down in Mexico. As a church, we have a number of projects happening in Mexico every week. We have a children's home that we bought and purchased, that we operate for kids in need. We have the colonials that we have adopted. And so there is a number of projects happening in Mexico every month. And then finally, locally, we call that our dream center giving. We have teams that go into the parks and feed the homeless and a food drive and other local Dream Center operations that God is building and established here. And so those are the different giving options. So if you're online, those are the different categories you can choose from to invest in the different projects that we as a church are a part of and that we accomplish on a regular basis. So I just wanted to give that for some clarification. Next weekend is Grow Weekend. We're asking everyone to find an opportunity to go deeper in your faith this summer. All the information is on our website. As we begin this brand new series in Ephesians chapter 1, we have journals available for you. Again, one of the things we're we're doing as a church family during this season is we're not doing the handout notes with the the fill-in-the-blanks because I'm asking you to take the notes of what God is speaking directly to you about the message. And so we have journals available with our new... Coastline pen free for everyone. So pick up one of these today. And then we're asking people to bring an old-fashioned paper Bible to church so that you can mark it up, you can underline it, you can write in the margin, you can write down thoughts of what God is speaking to you about different messages. And I saw uh, a friend of mine Do this on TV. He actually does this every service and just about every TV show he has. Uh, That is Joel Osteen. I don't know if you've ever seen Joel. His wife grew up in my wife's church, and so they knew each other as children growing up. And I've been with Joel a number of times, and I can tell you, off the stage, he really is that nice. I mean, it drives you crazy because he's just like the nicest person you'll ever meet. Like I, I spent three days with him once. Never heard him say a negative word about. Anybody. Like he really just loves people. And I've always admired him because the guy knows the Bible. Like he's got more Bible memorized than any pastor I know in America. If you're ever with him, he just quotes scripture after scripture after scripture. And one of the things they do in their services, and I want to do this today just to emphasize how important this book is in our life, is they all raise their Bible in every service. So if you have a Bible, raise it up with me for just a moment. And then let's all repeat this together, a declaration about our Bible. This is my Bible. Say that with me. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. And I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive and I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, Jesus. Amen. amen. Come on, give the Lord a hand. <laughs> what would happen if we actually believe that to be true? Think about that for a moment. What, what would your life look like if you really believe that you are what this book says that you are, that you have what this book says that you have, and you can do what this book says you can do? Can you imagine how incredible your life would be? Can I tell you, it is true, and, and the purpose of church is to help you apply that to your life. So we're going to dig into the book of Ephesians today. Uh, Ephesians is an incredible letter that Paul wrote. I, I look at it as the cliff notes of Christianity. If you can only read one book in the entire Bible, Ephesians clearly articulates the Christian life in every aspect, from what is the gospel and the foundation of our faith to how do we live in Christian. Christian community, and how do we apply these principles and walk them out in our daily life? Paul visited the city of Ephesus on a second and third missionary trips. He had three missionary trips traveling around the world before he was arrested and imprisoned in Rome. He actually wrote this letter from prison in Rome around AD 61. They estimate that he wrote He wrote four letters from uh, prison in Rome. We call them the, the prison epistles. Ephesus was it's in modern day turkey and it was the most significant city in all of the first century world next to the city of rome at a population of over 200,000 people it actually had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world along with you know the pyramids in egypt and the hanging gardens of babylon it was the temple of artemis one of the most massive temples you could ever possibly lay your eyes upon in the first century Uh, very, very significant. And so Paul traveled there and then he wrote a letter to the people there. And here's what he says in verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, God's holy people. We are God's holy people. All that means is we are set apart for God. The moment you gave your life to Jesus Christ, the moment you became born again, if you're born again here today, if you're not born again here today, you're not a Christ follower at the end of service we'll give you an invitation you can join the family but for those of us that are born again part of Christian life we are God's holy people set apart so this letter was a circular letter so it wasn't just for one specific church it was circular in the sense that it went to all different churches in the region and in the area meaning that it applies to us it is just as relevant to us today as it was back in the 1st century it's why we Study it. God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul is about to do in verse 3 through verse 14, and that's what we're going to look at today, and we're actually going to spend the next couple weeks on this set of verses because in the Greek language, verse 3 all the way down to verse 14 is one sentence. Now, no English translation of the Bible tries to pull this off. And so if you read it in the English translation, you'll see many different sentences because the translators don't even attempt to pull this off. But in the original Greek language, this is the longest sentence in the entire New Testament. It's one sentence and it is filled with just diamonds and gems and minerals and gold and silver. And we could honestly spend the next five years on these verses and not even get to the bottom of everything that's there. But we're going to begin today. So look at this with me, beginning in verse 3. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're hung up on the Arminian Calvinist debate, or you have no idea what I'm talking about, we're going to get into this in the coming weeks, and we'll answer it. Uh, I think both sides of the fence get it partially wrong, because it's not an either-or debate, it's a both-and, but we're not going to deal with that today. We'll get that in a couple weeks, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, a couple weeks, we'll make it clear to you. might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory, period. That's one sentence. That is a long sentence, Even in the Greek language, that is a long sentence. And there's a reason it's so long. And again, we're going to look at this for the next couple weeks. But I want to build a foundation as we begin this journey out of verse 3 and establish what our faith is all about. So let's go back to verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, meaning past tense. This has already happened in your life. This is not going to happen one day. If you are a believer, if you are born again, if you're a Christian, this has already happened past tense. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every, look at the absolute language, every, not some, not, not part of every spiritual blessing in Christ. You need to know today, not tomorrow, not in the future, not, not when, you, when, you, when you develop or you mature as a believer Today, you have been, past tense, blessed with every spiritual blessing that you could possibly receive. There is nothing left for you to receive. You have it all. Everything is in you right now. It's been given to you, past tense. Now, this word blessed doesn't quite mean what, what, what Paul, the way Paul used the word is not quite the same weight as the way we use the word today. We've We've diminished the word in our culture a little bit. When we say bless, in today's language, what we mean is to wish somebody well, like bless his heart or bless her heart or or bless them. That's not at all what Paul meant when he used the word bless. You see, in Paul's day and age, this word would be closer to the word shalom. And what it really means or, or literally translated would look like is every joy, every joy, and every benefit that your heart and soul need or long for. That's what the word blessed means. That you have received every benefit, every joy that your heart or soul could ever need or ever long for. It's in you already. There is power in that. Think about that. Every joy, every benefit that you that you've ever longed for, that you've ever needed, that you've ever wanted, you have already been given it. Well, then how come my life looks the way, if that's true, why do I look like the way I look? Well, let me give you a roadmap for where you're going to go today. And then we're going to break it down and and go through it piece by piece. I want to answer four questions out of this verse. Four questions that if you get the answer to these questions, it will transform your Christian life. It'll transform the whole process of how you grow into everything you've ever wanted to be as a Christian. First question, how do we receive every spiritual blessing? How, how do we get them? If they've already been given to us, how do we get them? Second, what is every spiritual blessing? What do these look like? What do they mean? How do they, how, how do they work out in my life? Third, what qualifies us for every spiritual? What do I have to do? How do I earn them? What what qualifies me to receive these things? And then finally, how do we activate every spiritual blessing? So it's not just mine, but I can actually use it. It actually changes my life. It's like if you go to the Apple store and you buy an iPad, they, they give you this beautiful little Apple box, and, and you know the box is that, that vacuum pressure seal, when you try, and it's like the most satisfying feeling to open the box for the first time. Now, I want you to imagine somebody gives you the iPad. They give you the box, and, and you bring the box home. It's yours. You have received the box. But if you never open it, if you never activate it, if you never use it, you have an iPad sitting in a box that does you no good. That's what happens with God's spiritual blessings. They're there waiting for you to pull out, waiting for you to activate, waiting for you to use. And we're going to look at today how you actually activate these in your life. But let's start with that very first question. How do we receive every spiritual blessing? Because one of the things Paul does in Ephesians is he doesn't pray that we receive more from God. He prays that we realize what we already have. So you can't receive more love from God than what you already have right now. You can't receive more peace from God, more joy from God than what you already have right now. Colossians 2 says we have been given fullness in Christ, which means we have, we have as much as we'll ever be able to get. What we need is what Paul talks about here. You've got to realize what you already have. So how do we receive it then? If we already have it, if it's already ours, past tense, How do we receive them, or or how do we get them in the first place? Well, Paul answers this with a series of repetitions throughout this very long sentence in the Greek language. Beginning in verse three, let's go back and look at it. Every spiritual blessing, here's how you receive it, in Christ. You receive them in Christ. They come to you in Christ. So when you are in Christ. That's how you receive them. Not on the screen, but in your Bible. If you have your Bible with you, if you look at chapter one, you see this repetition over and over and over and over. Verse four, he chose us in him. Verse six, he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen. Verse 12, our hope is In Christ. 13. We are included in Christ. 13. We are marked in Him. You see this over and over and over and over. It is in Christ that we receive every spiritual blessing. What does that mean? How does that work out? How does that practically impact our life here today? You have to understand the essence of Christianity. The foundation of our faith is we are in Christ, which means we are legally, this is a legal thing, we are legally united with Christ, which makes everything he has ours. We're legally united. You see, to become a Christian is not just to get Jesus as your Lord so that you have a king to obey or a Lord so that you have an example to follow, or even a Savior that you are grateful for. The essence of what it means to be born again, the essence of becoming a Christian is you are placed in Christ so that everything Christ has legally becomes yours. You are united with him. Think about marriage. In most countries in the world, The moment you get married, you're legally united. So let's say that you grew up poor. You you, you live in poverty your whole life. You don't have a penny to your name. You've got no wealth at all. And you end up marrying somebody who is very wealthy. They're very, very wealthy. They've worked hard for their wealth. They've built their wealth. They've amassed the wealth. The moment you say, I do, everything they have becomes yours legally. That's what Paul is talking about here. You could be living in poverty with nothing to your name. The moment you say, I do, it's not a process. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You simply say, I do. The moment you say, I do, legally, you are united, and now everything they have becomes yours. That's what Christianity is all about. We are united to him in death. I died died on the cross with Christ, Paul says. What does that mean? It means God treats you as if you went to the cross and paid for sin, and now you are no longer guilty or condemned. Because God sees you as dying on the cross. God sees you as being punished for your sin. So God can't punish you for your sin. He can't be angry with you for your sin. He can't hold your sin over your head because he sees you as dying on the cross. And once the debt is paid, it's paid. Not only are we united with him in death, but we're united with him in life, in the resurrection. The vindication of Jesus. All of the medals... All of the award, all of the honor, all of the glory that Jesus earned through his death on the cross and his resurrection to life, God now takes all of that and he pins it to your chest. You are legally one with him. Everything Jesus accomplished through his obedience on earth, through his perfection on earth, is now credited to your account. We are legally united with him. That's what it means to be in Christ. Not only are we legally united with him. We're organically united with Christ. Organically, what does that mean? His spirit, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. It's an organic process. So you're legally united in the sense that everything he has is now yours, but you're organically united because you now have his spirit living inside of you, helping you affect glorification and purification and transformation and growing into everything you were supposed to be. But the key is, to this entire thing is this is not a process. Do not look at this as a process. To be in Christ is not a process. This is a huge point, huge point. Becoming a Christian is not a process. You are either in him and you have all of the benefits of being in him, even though it may take the rest of your life to figure out what that means, or you are not in him and you have no benefits at all, but it's not a process of becoming you see, if you ask the average person in America, are you a Christian? Some people may say, no, I don't, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I, I don't believe in Christianity. Other people say, well, I'm trying. I, I hope so. I'm, I'm working on it. I, ever have anyone say that to you? Like, if you ask them, are you Christian? Well, I'm trying. I'm, I'm working on it. I, I, I hope I am. All that means is they have absolutely no idea at all about what it means to be a Christian. You see, the essence of Christianity is you are either adopted or you are not. You are either pardoned and accepted by God or you are not. You are either born again or you are not. You are either in Christ or you are not. Now look, when I say that becoming a Christian is not a process, that doesn't mean it's going to be a dramatic event. I mean, you don't, like, your wedding day, that's a pretty dramatic event. Like, you know you got married because you had the wedding day, and you said, I do, and it was a big celebration. It may or may not be like that when you become a Christian. But there will be a point where it happens. C. Everett Coop, the Surgeon General, the Surgeon General who actually performed the first surgery to separate conjoined twins. In his autobiography, he tells the story of when he started attending his church in Philadelphia, and he listened to his pastor preach every week. He said, when I first started going to the church, I disagreed with absolutely everything he said every week. Some of you are there right now. You've only been coming to church for a couple months, and you're still in the place where you disagree with everything I say every week, but something's drawing you back. He said in his biography, I disagreed with everything he said every week. But then a year later, all of a sudden, I woke up one day, and I realized I agreed with it all. I believed it all. I no longer disagreed, but I now believe, and I don't know, he goes, I don't know when it happened. It could have been during this series or it could have been during the summer months or it could have happened here, but there was a point where I was in Christ. There was a point where I went all in. I said yes, and I'd surrendered my life. So what's the point? The point is there's a point. It's not a process. There is a point where you are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. And it doesn't matter if you remember when the point happened, but it wasn't a process of becoming, because it's not a dramatic event. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. If you could earn your salvation, then yes, it would be a process. It would be stages that you go through becoming a Christian. And there are stages before you become a Christian, but there's no stage to becoming a Christian. It's a point. Just like with your wedding, there are stages before you got married. There was the dating stage. There was the courtship stage. There was the engagement stage. But none of those stages made you married. You are not legally married during any one of those stages, and none of those stages were earning your, your lead. It was the day you stood before God and said, I do. That was the point. You became legally married. And the same is true in Christianity. There are stages where you may be dating God. You may be checking him out. You may be visiting church. But there is a point where you go in Christ. It is not something you earn. It is not a process. It is not stages. It's a point. So you are in him. Now, when you understand the power of what I'm saying, it changes everything about your walk. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. I want you to reflect with me for a moment. Paul had people killed, Paul had people tortured. Paul had people thrown into jail for his religious fanaticism. Later on in Paul's ministry, there is no doubt that he would have known many people who were relatives and dear friends of the people that he had killed, tortured, and thrown into jail. Can you imagine Paul having to stand up on Sunday and give a message to a room full of people knowing that some of the people in there had relatives, that he was responsible for their death, he was responsible for them being tortured, he was resp- How did Paul live with the guilt? How did Paul overcome the guilt, the shame of the things that he had done? I spoke to someone this week who's still haunted by things in their past, still, still feeling Levels of shame because of mistakes they made. And here Paul is, completely confident in Christ, saying things like Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for the things that I've done. There is no condemnation for my past mistakes. You see, what Paul understood is what I'm trying to help you understand is that in Christ, I am rich and I have everything. In myself. I am poor and I have nothing. So we are either in Christ or we're not. Think of the power of that. Second, what is every spiritual blessing? What is every spiritual blessing? What do we get? Well, how do we get it, every spiritual blessing? It's being in Christ. What are they? Now, it's impossible for me to go through them all. I don't even know them all. I mean, they're they're innumerable. But let me give you two key ones and help you understand how they apply to your life today. Verse 4 and 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Adoption is one of those spiritual blessings. Adoption. Adoption is the heartbeat of Christianity. You see, in Christ, God is not just your king and deliverer, but God becomes your father and you are brought into a family. Do you understand how powerful this is? Adoption means access. Think about the president. If the president has a little seven or eight year old child, that child can run to their father and jump into his arms. Anybody else does that, they're going to get shot by the Secret Service. A child has access. You have access to God because of adoption. Adoption means inheritance. Now look, I know a lot of people get hung up on this phrase, adoption of sonship, and they're like, Paul is so sexist. What about the women? Now you need to understand that what he's doing here is not sexist at all. It's actually elevating the status of women. Because in the Roman world, the only buddy that can inherit from the father would be a biological son or an adopted son. But women had no claim in inheritance. And when Paul over and over and over throughout the New Testament, speaking to both men and women, says we are adopted as sons, he's saying to the women that you are equal for the inheritance just as much as the males in the church. You see what he's doing? It's the opposite of sexism. He's elevating women. Adoption also means security. How many know that you can have an employee working for you and they can cross certain lines and you'll fire them? But you can have a child in your home cross the very same line and you will go the extra mile for that child. You see, as a child, you have a security. See, if I was an employee, if this was a religion and I was working for God, then there are things that I could do to get on God's bad side. Where God could punish me or send me to hell or all sorts of crazy things that a powerful God can do. But he's not a God, he's a father to me. And he's a father who is God but he loves me and I have security because he's a father. Here's another blessing, spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption, redemption. Do you understand the power of redemption? Redemption is not just a payment for bad things that you've done. It's a ransom. You see, a redemption redeems you from captivity. It doesn't just pay for your sin, but it redeems you from slavery. The first year I was at Coastline, we were living in a little apartment here in Carlsbad, and we were moving out of our apartment into another apartment, and I was getting some stuff cleaned in the apartment, getting ready to turn in the keys to the apartment manager. And I left my car parked at a red curb a little too long. And you know those red curbs? I hate those red curbs. And my car is sitting at the red curb, and I'm just getting some stuff. And I, I, I honestly, I was not more than 10 minutes, I promise. It wasn't more than 10 minutes. And I come down, and somebody stole my car. It was gone. Like, it was gone. It was no longer at the red, car, red curb. So I went to the office manager. I said, what happened to my car? Somebody stole it. Call the cops. And they said, no, we had it towed. It was impounded. And man, I was frustrated. I was like, I was only in my apartment for 10 minutes. We're like, we're sorry. It was at a red curb. It was, it was the rules of the rules. And so I had to go to this little place in Carlsbad, where my car was locked up behind a cage. And the little sign on, on the, the little office door to get in, the sign said, Redemption Center. <laughs> and I had to go into this little office, this Redemption Center, and I had to pay a fine. And on this pink piece of paper, they put this stamp that said, Redeemed. And my car was now liberated from captivity. Do you understand how powerful redemption is? Jesus didn't just pay for your sins. He liberated you from captivity. And this concept is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. Let me explain it like this. Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi was an incredible student of all world religions. And what Gandhi said was that Eastern and Western religions both agree that as a human being, we are not free. We are slaves to selfishness and ego. All of us are born slaves, and that's, that's what drives us our entire life. We have this ego. We have this selfishness. We're a slave to it, so we want to achieve power. We want to achieve money. We want to achieve beauty. We want to achieve success And every problem we have, and what makes us so miserable is being a slave to our selfishness and a slave to ego. Gandhi says, here is how Christianity helps. Now understand, Gandhi's understanding of Christianity came from Leo Tolstoy, who really didn't really understand Christianity all that well, and so Gandhi's understanding wasn't all that well. But here's what Gandhi said. In Jesus, you have a way to be free from your selfishness and ego. You can be liberated through Jesus. How? Ask Gandhi. Well, Gandhi would tell you his example. Jesus lived a perfect example. When you see the example of Jesus, it liberates you. How Jesus was was self-sacrificing, and he gave his life, and he helped people, and he cared, and he fed the poor, and he healed the sick, and he gave up all the wealth of heaven to come live on earth. Jesus, according to Gandhi, was the ultimate example that liberates you. Well, with all due respect, to everything Gandhi did, that doesn't work for me And I don't know many people that works for. You see, when I look at the example of Jesus, how perfect he was, how kind he was, how he never had an evil thought, never said a bad word, never did anything mean to anyone, that doesn't liberate me, it crushes me. Because I realize on my best day, I can't even get to a fraction of that. That actually adds to the guilt and the shame of my life, because I know I will never be as good as Jesus. As great as his example is, his example does not liberate me. You see, it's dangerous when I try to earn my righteousness through following the example of Jesus. That's what religion teaches. And all human beings at a very deep level want to be righteous. When you're born, you have this hole inside that says, I'm not complete. Something's missing. And so our entire life, we chase to try to fix this hole so we think that success will fix it or or money will fix it or power or fame or beauty. Because I don't feel right. I don't feel complete. And so my whole life I'm chasing to feel right. And all that is, is a search for righteousness. And we do it whether we're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, you, you, you search for righteousness and trying to be beautiful, smart, successful, powerful. But we even do this as religious people. We try to earn our own righteousness by saying, I'll be a good husband, or I'll be a good father, or I'll be a good person, or, I'll be very moral, and I'm trying to earn my own righteousness. And we end up wanting these things more than we want God itself. And anything you love more than God, you will be enslaved to. So the example of Jesus will never liberate us from our captivity, is admiring as it is to look at Jesus and how incredible he was and how wonderful he was, his example will never liberate us. Which brings me to the third question. What qualifies us for every spiritual blessing? And this is the answer. How how am I redeemed in Christ? How am I redeemed so that I can be in Christ so that I can receive every spiritual blessing? Ephesians 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his grace. Blood. It's not his example. It's his blood. His death that provides forgiveness so that I qualify. I don't qualify because I'm good enough. I don't qualify because I can earn it. I don't qualify because I can follow his example well enough. I qualify because of what he did on my behalf, period. You see, if I see Jesus serving and giving and dying for others, as an example, all that does is crush me. But when I begin to look at Jesus serving and dying and giving his life for me personally, it melts me. It changes me. It's no longer Jesus died for the world. It's Jesus died for me. That satisfies everything I've ever been looking for. You see, my whole life I'm looking to fill this hole, this this, I want to feel right. I want to feel complete. I, I feel broken, I feel like something's missing, and I need to feel right. And so I chase all these things, trying to feel right, but none of them satisfy. In Christ, that hole is complete. When I see the God of the universe gave his life for me, what love could this world offer me that can compare with that? What value or worth can this world offer me that can compare with that? So this brings me to my last question as we close. How do we then activate every spiritual blessing? How do we activate it? How do you know if you've been redeemed? How do you know that you're in Christ? How do you know that you've trusted in the blood, that you've been adopted? How do you activate it? Well, again, remember, Christianity is not behavior modification. That's religion. It's heart transformation. How do I know that my heart is transforming? Well, the answer is in verse 6, in a very powerful phrase where Paul says, to the praise, the praise of his, not grace, glorious grace. It's the word glorious. The word glorious is the key to it all. You see you see this phrase over and over. It happens in verse 12. It happens in verse 14. What does it mean? Here's how you know. Here's how you activate every spiritual blessing to start generating in your heart and in your life. You don't just believe in grace in your head. It's not just grace. It's glorious grace. It's not just in your head understanding that I know salvation is by grace and not by good works, but it actually becomes glorious to me that that I praise it, I sing about it. It liberates me. It captures my heart. Think about it like this. When you work hard all week long and your boss pays you, like you put in your 40 hours at work and they, they give you your salary, they write that check, do you praise your glorious salary? Glorious. I sing about it. This is amazing. My boss paid me. I mean, how many of you, does that capture your heart when you get paid? Does it enrapture you? Does it catch your imagination? No. Why? Because you earned it. You worked for it. You worked hard all week long. They need to pay you. It's what's due you. They owe it to you. There's nothing glorious about that. You see, if you feel like God owes you, like, yeah, I know it's grace, but God owed me grace because I was a pretty good person. There's nothing glorious about that. That doesn't capture your heart. You don't praise the glorious grace. You see, when it moves from your head to your heart, and you begin to understand, you praise it, you adore it, you sing about it. So how does it become glorious? Well, there's no more powerful narrative on earth than a story of somebody who gives their life for somebody else. A couple years ago during our At the Movies, we did the movie The Guardian. Remember Kevin Costner and Ashton Kutcher? They're hanging on the cable, and the cable begins to fray. And, the, and, and Kevin Costner realizes it's not going to hold both of us. And so he tears his glove out and he gives his life to save Ashton Kutcher. And all of our hearts melted in that moment and said, yes. It makes you feel something. Why? Because somebody gave his life for somebody else. Or one of my favorite movies, maybe cheesy to you, but Bruce Willis and Armageddon. Remember, he, he pulls Ben Affleck's suit and he pushes him back in the chamber and he goes and he blows up the asteroid and saves the entire world and your heart is like, yes, he's a man, Bruce Willis. <laughs> I mean, you feel something watching that or even this weekend with Memorial Day and you think about all the, the brave men and women who gave their life for our nation and how it moves you in your heart. See, when you get to the point where you look at the cross and you realize Jesus did that for me, he didn't just die for the whole world, he died for me. If I was the only one, he still would have done it. He gave his life for me. See, it stops being grace and it becomes glorious grace. It becomes good news. You begin to praise it. You begin to sing about it. The glorious grace of what he did for me. And I'm telling you, you get to the place where his grace becomes glorious to you, and you begin to praise it, and you begin to adore it, and you begin to sing about it, you will see every spiritual blessing come alive inside of you. See, the truth is when every spiritual blessing comes alive inside of you, you'll be perfect. You'll have perfect confidence, you'll have perfect humility, you'll have perfect self-control over sin. You'll you'll be perfect in every way when, when those spiritual blessings are realized, they're there. They're just dormant. You've got to activate them, realize them. And and the truth is, we're we're never going to realize all of it until we get to heaven. I get that. But you can begin a process of spiritual transformation. But it's not anything you do. It's looking at the cross. And when the cross becomes glorious, when, when when your heart is captured by what Jesus did. See, when you look at the cross, do you feel like the guy getting his paycheck from work? There's nothing glorious about it. I earned this. Or do you feel like this is incredible? Because when it becomes glorious, it activates all of those spiritual blessings. So you owe it to yourself to figure this out. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Not his example, his blood, what he did on the cross. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches, not the poverty. It's not the poverty of God's grace, it's the riches of God's grace that he lavished, and some of us needed it to be lavished. I didn't need a little bit of grace with my past. I needed to be lavished with grace because my past was filthy. My past was dirty. My past was stained. There's so many things I've done that I regret. I didn't need a little bit of grace. I needed somebody who was rich in grace. I needed somebody who could lavish me, to completely wash me, to cover all of my shame, all of my sin with his grace. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? If you're here and you would say that's me today, I need to be lavished with God's grace. Maybe you're not a Christian and this is your point. This is the moment where you want to surrender your life to being a Christian. Maybe you were at one time or you think you were at one time, but you don't know what you are anymore and it's time to come home. Or maybe you are a Christian but you're still struggling with guilt and shame. And you need to be lavish with God's grace. If you're in any one of those situations, with every eye closed, just put your hands over your heart for me. And I want you to pray this with me. And you can pray it in your heart. You don't have to do it out loud. But just in your heart say, Jesus, today I give you my life. Thank you for your grace that you lavish over me. Your grace that covers all of my shame all of my guilt, all of my condemnation, it's gone. I am united with you. Everything you have legally is now mine. Thank you, Jesus.